Good morning. You can open up your Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And today we get the privilege of once again being able to sit under the Word of God preached. And I want to do that today by actually preaching on a text that is about just that. That's about the Word of God. And so Psalm 19 will be our text. And so if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. So I'm a big fan of New Year's. I enjoy the sentiment of hope and starting afresh, turning over a new leaf as the new year rolls in. And in our culture, it's popular to formulize this sentiment with something like a New Year's resolution, where we make commitments or goals to reach um, in the new year, new, new disciplines, new, new habits, maybe recommitments of things that we know we should have always been doing. And one way Christians have typically formed resolutions for the new year is making a commitment to be in the Bible more, to be in God's Word Maybe by, by starting a new Bible reading plan or just scheduling out more time in our lives to spend in the scriptures. And these are, are wonderful things to dedicate our time to and, and necessary things for the Christian. And so in this morning, in, in light of the new year, I want us to spend our time meditating and, and centering our hearts on the glory of God's word. By looking at Psalm 19, which tells us of the eternal, incomprehensible, infinite God in his revelation of himself to his creatures. So in Psalm 19, which is a a cherished psalm for God's people throughout the ages, we see David craft a a hymn, a poem of praise to God for his, his revelation his revelation in the world, in creation, and in his revelation through his word, the scriptures. So for our, our outline today, I want us to spend our, thinking, spend our time thinking through this psalm under three main ideas, or three headings. So the first is, is God's revelation in nature, which we'll find in verses 1 through 6. Second will be God's revelation in His Word, which we'll find in verses 7 through 9. 
And then finally, the believer's response to God's revelation in verses 10 through 14. So we'll see God's revelation in nature, God's revelation in his word, and then our response, the believer's response to God's revelation. So first, God's revelation in nature. The the psalm opens up with David exclaiming the glories of creation of what can be called God's wordless revelation. It's often been remarked, and I think we can get a sense of this reading this in English, but it's often been remarked this section of the psalm is specifically poetically beautiful. It's, It's brilliantly crafted to produce praise, to produce awe. C.S. Lewis, who who knows a thing or two about beautiful literature, said of Psalm 19, it is the greatest poem in the Psalter and the greatest lyrics in all the world. But it's just not aesthetically beautiful and powerful. It's extremely rich in meaning and a key text to some core doctrines in the history of the church. So look down, verse 1, acts sort of as as a... summary statement of sorts for the first six verses. We read that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The heavens, the sky above, this ties back to what we see in Genesis 1, specifically Genesis 1-6, where we see the, the word expanse there, where God separates the waters and 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 creates the great expanse, what he calls the heavens. It's a difficult word to translate in English, but it means something like the the observed world and and universe above us, the the sky, the stars, the planets. This is the heavens, the sky above. And what is important is I do think David is connecting here in verse 1 of the psalm back to Genesis 1 back to Genesis 1-6, to bring to mind to the reader creation, to bring to our minds the the creation account. The heavens here in verse 1 is shorthand for the whole of creation. So everything that, that God has created. And what we see is that the heavens, that is, all of the creation of God, does something. It it communicates to us. Notice these these words of communication in the verses. Verse 1, that the heavens declare. The sky above proclaims. Verse 2, pours out speech. Reveals knowledge. Verse 4, voice and words. So the heavens, the creation... Reality as we know it and experience it is communicating something to us. And we see in verse 1, it's declaring to us the glory of God. Glory here is is the importance or the the inherent value of something. So the the creation speaks to the creatures and declares the, the utter importance and unmatched value of God. The glory of God. We see this again in verse 2. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So through the creation itself, God is revealing knowledge of himself to mankind. Now just think about this for a second. God's creation, the, the observed universe, is his revelation of himself of the eternal God that communicates to us his glory, his his unmatched importance. And that's amazing. And that's essentially the big idea in verses 1 through 6. And theologically, we call this revelation God's general or or his natural revelation. That is the, the revelation of God that is to all humans, that is found in nature. It's common to all men, believer and non-believer alike, have access to it. And in verses 2 through 4, we see some characteristics of this revelation. So verse 2, we see this this beautiful phrase, day to day pours out speech, and, and night to night reveals knowledge. 
What David is doing with the, the day and night language is a phrase that tells of, of everything visible in the heavens during the day and during the night. And simultaneously shows the, the continuous nature of the revelation. In other words, God's revelation in creation never stops. In our modern, less poetic language, we could say God is revealing himself in creation 24-7. Day to day, night to night. God's revelation in nature is continuous. And in verses 3 and 4, we see the extent. We see how far this revelation reaches. Read with me, starting in verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So the point is, is clear here. God's natural revelation, it's personified as, as words here, it reaches everybody. There's no one who doesn't hear these words. Or to say the inverse, everyone hears. Everyone experiences God's revelation by virtue of living in the creation of God. From the primitive tribesmen in the Amazon to the urbanite city dweller living in New York. Every single person, all of us, experiences God's revelation in nature all of the time. And that's really the point David is making in verses 4 through 6 with the personification of the sun. David describes the sun at the end of verse 4 as one whom God pitched a tent. The idea here is that when the sun goes away in the night sky, he goes into a tent, a dwelling place to sleep, and comes out every morning like a groom leaving his bedroom with, with great exuberance, and a strong man about to run a race over the course of the earth. So the, the image is like a, an Olympic runner, ready, about to run his course, that is the sun, and, and the sun does what it does well. It gets his job done. The sun goes everywhere. Nothing is hidden from its heat. And the same is true for all of God's revelation in nature. Nothing or no one can escape it. God has revealed himself in creation everywhere and to everyone, just as the sun reaches and benefits everyone. And in the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul, in the passage Chance just read for us, in Romans 1, he, he takes this truth, he takes this truth from Psalm 19, and he makes a point, a very important point for all of us. That because God's revelation of himself is seen by all, then no one, no one has an excuse for their unbelief in God. Paul says in Romans 1, starting in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God's shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, the non-believer, is without excuse. They're without excuse. The creation, the, the observed world around us that we inhabit, declares there is a God. That's Paul's point. The, the beauty of the sunset, the intricate design of the universe, molecules, DNA, the complexity of the human brain, antelopes, all of it, everything in creation, all of it is pointing to a creator. And the, the non-believer is without excuse for their unbelief because they reject this. They suppress this truth. They reject the clear revelation of God that extends to every single person. And the call for the Christian who, who worships the God who reveals himself in nature is to do just what David does in this psalm, to to look at the world, to observe the creation, 
to look at, at the sunsets, study the science, contemplate on what we see, and then give praise to the designer, give praise to the architect, the creator of this world, God. So when you're awestruck at the beauty of creation, which happens to all of us, maybe looking over Palo Duro Canyon, or maybe awestruck in a very different way, like me this week, driving down Sansi amongst hundreds of tumbleweeds in this windstorm, whatever it is, when we experience the beauty and power of nature, we should worship and praise God. Give Him glory that He is due. Because these things, creation, what we observe, they don't just happen. They're not meaningless. God is, through them, proclaiming His handiwork to us. And He gets glory, the glory that He's due when we recognize it. But God does not limit Himself to, to revealing Himself only through creation. You know, we can know some things about God through nature alone, like Paul says. We can know His eternal nature. We can know something about His, his divine power his might, his strength, but we can't know everything we need to know about God by merely looking at, by merely observing the created world. Particularly, we can't know how to be in a covenant, saving relationship with him through nature alone. We need a more particular revelation. Or you could say we need a, a special revelation. And that's exactly where David goes in verses seven through nine, which leads to our, our second point, God's revelation in his word. So read with me verses seven and nine again, or seven through nine. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So David takes a, a pretty abrupt turn in the psalm, starting here in verse 7. And we can see this in that, that the style changes quite a bit. It becomes a very structured in language. He starts to proclaim the, the, the glories of God's word. But notice the structure here. It's really important for us to understand. There, there's, there's five references to God's word. Right? Notice we see law, testimony, precepts, commandments, rules with one response to God's word and their fear. Then we see paired with those references to God's word, we see five characteristics of God's word. It is perfect. It is sure. It's right. It's pure. It's true. And then a characteristic of the fear of God. It's clean. So you can see that beginning of verse 9. And then the, the final aspect of each reference is six things the Word of God does, specifically to us, to believers. Revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, and is righteous altogether. So it's a highly structured piece of poetry here from David. And my argument's pretty simple here. The point, this is glorious, a glorious description from David. Because in it, we see the unmatched value and worth of God's revelation through his word. It's even more glorious than anything we can find in nature. So let's just unpack these, these verses a bit. Verse 7 begins by saying that the, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Notice the, notice the pattern we just highlighted. Law, which is perfect, results in revival of the soul, reviving the soul. 
And notice also a shift from the first six verses. In the first six verses, David uses the, uses the name God, Elohim, to describe God's natural or, or general revelation in creation. But in 7 through 9, he uses a different name. Right? He uses the name Lord, Yahweh. That is significant because that is God's covenantal, his, his personal name that his people alone shall call him. So by implication, we can see this is revelation for God's people. Personal words. God's specific words for His children. His special revelation that is for His people to know Him as their covenant Lord. And we see Him say that the law of the Lord is perfect. Perfect. Now, that word law is the word Torah, very famous word, very popular word, in a word that can mean a lot of different things. It can mean a specific law. It can, it can mean kind of the whole old covenant law system. It can mean just specifically the, the law writings in the Old Testament. Or it's often used to refer to a sort of shorthand as of the entirety of God's word. The, the scriptures would be a synonym. And it's that final use, the scriptures, that I think David is using here, which I think is clear from the context. All the references here, law, testimony, precepts, commandments, rules, they're all describing different aspects we see written in the scriptures, which will become hopefully more clear as we walk through them. So when David says law in verse 7, we can make a one-to-one connection with the Bible, God's Word. And what we see that, about that Word is that it is perfect. It's perfect, meaning flawless. It's without any error. Maybe you've heard the word inerrant to describe the Bible. That's what it means, not, not missing anything. It's complete. The Bible can, contains no internal contradictions. There is no incoherent logic in the Bible. It's flawless. And this makes sense because the Lord, Yahweh, is perfect. His word, then, we should expect to be without error because we confess that that our God, who is the author of these scriptures, is perfect. And the effect of the word here is that it revives the soul. It's a very interesting phrase. It literally means to to return to. It it returns the soul. I think the idea here is that God's word returns our life, our soul, to what we're created to be. Or another way to say that is that the word of God leads to our ultimate God-intended end, what we were intended to be, our, our flourishing. It revives us in that it causes us to, to, to be as we were meant to be in fellowship with our Creator. But notice this for us. We need then God's Word. We need the Scriptures for our flourishing. There is no revival of the soul. There is no spiritual nourishment. There is no flourishing in this life without the Word of God. We need it. It it, it revives us. And only it can. Next, the, the second reference we see is that the testimony, the testimony of the Lord is sure in making wise the simple. Testimony is a term talking about God's word about himself, God's, God's self-declaration of, of who he is and his, his acts in the creation. So this is the scripture. This is what the scriptures are full of. God's testimonies of his acting, of his self-declaration of who he is. And we see that his testimony is sure, meaning it's reliable. It's completely trustworthy. So when we read accounts about God in the Bible, about who he is and what he has done, we can know without a doubt that they are accurate. They're they're trustworthy accounts. There's no fabrications. There's no lies. And the effect of this testimony 
of the Lord is that it makes wise the simple. Simple here doesn't mean stupid, um, but more like young and, and naive. So think of a child when you see this word simple. They're simple because they just don't know everything they need to know to exist and, and live in the world. Thus, they, they can't live in the world. They're, they're simple. They need guidance. They need help. And David is saying here that, that we all are like that in some sense in this world. We are all simple. And God's word causes us, those who don't know about the world, who don't know about reality fully, it causes us to be wise. Wisdom, on the other hand, means living a life in a, in a disciplined, productive manner, a God-honoring lifestyle. So God's word makes us who are simple, makes us who don't know how to fully make sense of things and how, how to live on our own. It makes us able to be disciplined, productive servants of God. And we know this, don't we? The Bible is immensely practical for relationships, for work, raising kids, for every aspect of our life. The Bible has words to guide us. You'll be made wise by reading and meditating on God's word and the testimony of who God is and what he has done. I'm going to take the two references in verse 8 together. I think they're very similar. The, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Precepts and commandments are, are extremely close in meaning. You can kind of view them as synonyms. These are regulations for righteousness. Or just simply God's rules for his people. And what we see is that his commandments, his rules, is they're right. They're upright. This has a moral connotation, meaning God's commandments are morally upstanding. They're ethically right. There's nothing ever immoral about what God commands. And they're pure. So God's commands are never inappropriate. They're never questionable. They have no corruption at all. They're, they're, they're upright and they're pure. And I'll just say, I think this is really key for us to, to remember and to trust in in our current day and age. Because we live in a culture which says that, that God's words are, are hurtful. And even sometimes that they, His commands are evil. And listen to me, God's commands determine what is morally right and wrong. And by virtue of being a command from God, they are always right. They are always pure, always, no matter what our culture and rebellion to God says. So this verse can be so helpful to us as we're faced with, with many challenges to God's commandments in the Bible. We need to remind ourselves, as, as David does here, God's rules are morally upright. God's commandments are pure, always. They are the clear and only standard of right and wrong in this world. Now, what are the, the effects of these commandments? What are the effects of these precepts that we have in the Bible? Well, they, they rejoice the heart. Literally, they, they bring joy inwardly, and they enlighten the eyes. I think the, the common character we sometimes hear, even sometimes from Christians, about God's commandments and law is the opposite of what David is saying here, isn't it? Have you heard someone claim they, they like the Jesus part of the Bible, the, you know, the love everybody acceptance part of the Bible, but they just can't get down with all the rules and regulations? They're just too constraining. They limit who I am. They limit my joy. They limit my happiness. Maybe you've heard someone say that. Maybe if you're honest this morning, you believe that a little yourself. 
right now. Surely God doesn't want me to give up this thing that brings me so much joy that he says is wrong in his word. No, brothers and sisters, far from stealing and robbing our joy, God's commands are the direct source of joy. They rejoice the heart. So can't we say that along with David, that, that his law, his commandments, his, his prohibitions against drunkenness, his, his commands against sexual immorality, his, his positive commands for us to, to sacrificially serve one another in the body of Christ, and his command for us to gather each week as his church. May we count that as joy in this life because the truth of God's word is that is where our joy and fulfillment is found. It's actually found in keeping God's commands and nowhere else. So our hearts rejoice. We are full of joy when we live according to his ways. God's precepts also enlighten our eyes. They, they enlighten the eyes. I think it's helpful to think of the opposite of this for a moment. Without God's regulations, without God's commands, his precepts, we would not be enlightened. We would be lost. We would be lost in the dark, confused, not knowing where to go. But by God's commands... By God's, through God's word, God's people have their eyes enlightened. Meaning simply, we know where to go. God's word allows us to, to see where we're to go. It's a, a lamp to our feet. It shows us what we're to do in this life. It tells us how we are to order our life. And even more amazingly, it tells us how to get there. Verse 9, we, we see a, a break in the pattern of, of references to God's word. But I think in context, we can see the, the first half of verse 9 as a response to God's word, a right response to God's revelation. Fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord, which is clean, and it endures forever. So God's word should produce a reverent awe, a, a fear for God, which is clean. Clean is a term typically used in the Old Testament to refer to ritual purity of, of the sacrificial system that sacrifices would make pure, would make clean. That's the same word used here. So the fear of the Lord, which is God's, which, which God's revelation of himself produces, is clean. That fear, that awe, that reverent awe that the word produces in us is pure. It's clean. It's not corrupted in any way, and it will endure into eternity. It will endure forever. It is what we should center our life on. The last reference to God's word in verse 9 is that the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Rules here can also be translated as decrees or, or judgments, which I think is the, the best word to use here. So God's judgments, the judgments that God makes that are recorded in his word, they're true. Meaning God will never give an unjust decision or, or a corrupt judgment. All the judgments that we have recorded for us in the scriptures by God are true. They, they correspond to reality. They, they, they correspond to how things ought to be. And the Judgments of God are righteous altogether. They're, they're, simply put, they're right. This is really helpful when we come to places in the Bible that are hard for us to understand, specifically probably to, to emotionally stomach. Maybe something like God's judgment to annihilate the inhabitants of Canaan and Joshua. We may be tempted to think, God, that's not right. Your, your judgment is off here, God. And we need this verse from David in our minds when, when going to passages like that. God's rules, God's judgments, his decrees, 
They're true and they're righteous. They're right. He doesn't make a wrong decision. He doesn't make wrong judgments. He doesn't ever enact an unjust judgment. His way is completely righteous. And that truth, when we believe it, will cause us to trust him and his word fully. And listen, this gets very practical for us as Christians. That means when, when you, that mean, or when, when God declared you righteous, when God declared you justified in Christ through faith, that judgment is not wrong, believer, and it can't be wrong. It will never be wrong. You are justified in Christ, and you can be fully assured of your salvation, no matter how you're, you're feeling about it. Because God does not make a wrong judgment. His judgments are true and righteous. So I hope you can see it's sort of an understatement to say this is a glorious description from David of God's word. God's word is magnificent in its perfection and amazing, amazing in its effects on God's people. What other object, what other person, what other word revives the soul? Who else gives wisdom to to live life? What word brings joy to our heart and enlightens our eyes? What word is completely righteous altogether? What else is like the Bible? What else is like God's revelation? It's, it's utterly unique. The book that we get to read, it's an utterly unique book. So what's the response? What's the response? Well, we see that in the remaining verses from David, which is our last point this morning. The believer's response to God's revelation. Our response to God's revelation. In verses 10 through 14, we see David record his response to to his contemplation on the revelation of God. And what we see is two things that I would argue all believers should respond in the same with, along with David. And that is first, a cherishing of God's word, a a cherishing of God's word. And second response would be a growth in godliness. Growth in godliness. So our response to God's revelation is to cherish it and to grow in godliness. And we'll see that in these verses. In verse 10 we read, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The they there uh, in this verse refers, I think, pretty clearly to what came before it, all those descriptions of the scriptures. So the they there is the scriptures, the word of God. And David is recognizing the word's unmatched value, his delight, his, his cherishing of the word. He compares the word to two things, gold or, or money and honey, money and honey. David knows that gold and wealth are, are merely resources given by God, good resources given by God, but they can't ultimately bring fulfillment. Gold will never revive anyone's soul. Money will never enlighten anyone's eyes. Resources do not give, give wisdom to live in this world as the Bible commands. No, only one thing can do that, as we've seen, the Bible. So therefore, he concludes, God's word is more valuable. It's, it should be more cherished than gold, the finest gold, the, the highest of riches, the most amount of money. Because only through the word can our life be transformed. Similarly, David says that, that God's word is better than honey from the, from the drippings of a honeycomb. What David has in mind here, I don't think is, is literal honey, but, but any sensory pleasure. Things that are, delight us, that are pleasing to us, that we enjoy. The Bible is of more value, is worth more than the things that bring us our greatest earthly pleasure. 
which there's tons of things that provide us delight in this age. But the Bible is of more value. It's worth more than these, those things that bring us that pleasure. And we can know this through reading the Word. There's, there's a tangible, experiential delight that occurs when a child of God reads God's Word, our, our Father's Word to us. There's, I'm sure all of us have experienced this to some level or another. There's a transcendent delight as we're in communion with our Maker, with the God of the universe, literally reading the words of the one who made us. And when put like that, we can see how no earthly pleasure can match lingering, spending time in God's Word. So following David, the the believer, as David being a model to us, we, we should also cherish God's word in the same way. So do you, do you value God's word more than money, more than your resources? Do you value God's word more than the satisfaction of your desires, than your pleasures? I think it's a good question to ask when when reading verses like this. In verse 11, David gives another statement of the function of God's word as a descriptor of why it's so valuable. Because by the scriptures, by the Lord's commands, God's servant is warned. And in keeping them, there's great reward. This is echoing what we saw in verses 7 through 9. And it's pretty much what we see if you read the book of Proverbs, which I encourage everyone to do all the time. Read the Proverbs, and you'll be warned over and over again how straying from God's way Straying from God's word ultimately leads to destruction. They're warnings for us. And following God's way generally leads to reward and blessing in this life. That is the summary of Proverbs. That's the way God has set up this world, his creation. And it's a wonderful blessing that he's given to his people. His his word, his guidelines, his commandments to us to be our our guide in this life that warn us from the error that will destroy us that that gives us earthly and, and heavenly reward when we obey them when we submit to the words of God but one thing is obvious to every reader of this psalm and even to David himself as we're going to see we don't all get this right we don't always follow God's way we go off the path. We become wayward. David doesn't get everything in his life right. It's clear. We sin. We sin. And knowing God's word more actually makes us more aware of our sin. This is what we see, I think, in verses 12 and 13. And the second response the believer should have in response to God's word a growth in godliness, and specifically through the confession of our sin that the word will produce in us. Confession of sin. So what we see in these verses is a prayer from David in light of his meditation on God's law, on God's commandments. He says, who can discern his errors? Who can discern his errors? His rhetorical question, the answer is no one. No one knows all of his errors. No one knows all of his sin. The point is we don't always understand our own sinfulness. We don't fully grasp the depths of our depravity. So we must, like David, ask God to declare us innocent, declare us innocent from hidden faults. Hidden faults are the the sins committed maybe out of ignorance of the commands of God. We just don't know that this is a sin. Or acts not done premeditatedly. In some ways, these sins are done unwittingly. And yet David still feels the need rightly to ask God to declare him innocent because he's still guilty of such sins, even if done unwittingly. We're all guilty of these hidden faults. This is coupled with, in verse 13, with David asking God to protect him from committing presumptuous sins. So it's kind of the inverse of hidden sins. 
This is something we, we see in the Old Testament in places like Numbers 15, which is also called high-handed sins. It's a blatant disregard for God's command. We, we know the command and we choose in our hearts and in our actions not to do it. It's a sin of presumption, a high-handed disobedience to our Lord. And David asked God to keep himself back from such sins, to cause him not to commit such sins, so that they will not have dominion over him, so they will not rule him. Because we know, we, we all know this as David knows, that is exactly what happens when we leave sin unchecked in our lives. It will rule us. We become slaves to sin, as Paul would say. And God's servant... But the believer, in light of God's revelation of himself to his people, must guard and plead with God not to fall into such heinous acts. That's one of the results of spending time in his word. David says at the end of verse 13 that if God is to do that, he will be blameless. David will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. This is what happens when the Lord declares David innocent, innocent of his hidden sins, and protects him from the worst aspects of his flesh. And what David is describing here, I think we can simply just call godliness. Godliness, growing in Christ's likeness, not committing great acts of wickedness, being blameless in our life. And blameless here, it's important to know, it doesn't mean perfect. It's more of a word meaning integrity, not being hypocritical, living in line with our belief in God. And we know David isn't talking about perfection because he's talking about forgiveness and confession of his own sin. So he obviously understands he's not perfect. But here's the big point of this whole section. When we're confronted with our sin, which will necessarily and absolutely occur when we're reading God's word. But when we're confronted with our sin, we must be faithful to confess it, to confess our sin which results, which grows us in godliness, grows us in godly character. David ends the psalm in verse 14 with these very famous words. Let the words of my mouth... And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So it's another prayer in response to God's revelation, in response to God's word. It's a prayer that God would accept David's words. This is the, the proper response we should have when encountering the, the revelation of God. Think about it. right? David has just been contemplating, he's been considering God's revelation in nature in verses 1 through 6. He's been contemplating God's revelation and word in, in his word for his people in verses 7 through 9. And he then prays for his own finite, feeble words, his own thoughts, that they would be acceptable to Almighty God. Do you see the humility that the revelation of God produces in David? The God who is our rock, meaning the sovereign God, who is who's our foundation for our life. The, the Lord who, who is our redeemer, the one who delivers his people from their enemies. Rock and redeemer, you can view them as, as a summary statements of, of God's nature and God's provision. And he asks for acceptance of his thoughts and words, of his feeble, finite words. That is humility. That is godliness. That the word grows in us as we spend time in his revelation to us. So friends, in closing, I hope you can just get a taste, you can get a little glimpse of why Psalm 19 is so glorious as it declares the glories of God's revelation, both in nature, but most especially in his word, and his word that we have written for us in the Bible. But let us not lose sight of what David knows, that God revealed himself to us through his word for a reason. 
And that is to lead us to greater worship and greater commitment to Him. To inspire us to to greater adoration, to, to greater praise of His name above every other name. And to renew our commitment to to grow in godliness as we confess our sin and come before Almighty God in humble contrition and humility. So brothers and sisters, as, as we make many, many good resolutions in the coming days regarding the new year, I hope that we make many good ones. But at the top of that list, may we seek to grow in our time with this word of God the word that is able to to transform us, that word that will lead to our flourishing, the only word that will make us wise in this age, that that, that will help us make sense of reality, the word that enlightens our eyes to guide our path, to be a lamp to our feet, to show us where we need to go, to show us how to honor God, this very word of God that will endure forever. Let us cherish it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for your word and the opportunity and privilege you've given to to us this morning to gather, to, to sit under your word preached. Pray that for each of us in this room, that that over the next moments, hours, days, weeks, months, years, that we would cherish your word above everything else. Cause us to find our joy in being obedient as it is the only thing that will rejoice our heart when we submit to your ways. Pray that you would bring to mind to to us, each of us, just little ways or big ways that we can order our life more, to order it around your word, to to live in submission to your, your ways. And may we, like David, when we fall, when we fail, when we sin, come before you in humility knowing that we are finite, knowing that we are sinful, and declare us innocent through the blood of Jesus which covers our sins. We're so thankful for our Savior, our Redeemer, our Rock, who is Christ, through whose death we have been saved and delivered from our greatest enemy, sin and death. May we now respond and and give to you the the praise and adoration that you deserve as we behold you as our God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.